Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. This is Arthi Shaw. I'm executive editor for Provoke Media and your host for today's episode. So on today's episode, we have a longtime friend of mine and of Provoke's um, here today, Aaron Quitkin. So Aaron wears many titles, as many of you may know. Um, he's probably best known as founder, CEO, and now chairman of KWT Global, formerly known as Quitkin. Um, he is also founder and CEO of Profit, which is what we're going to talk about today. And he is also now, he has another title he can add. He's also a member of the Provoke Media Innovator 25, class of 2021. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks, Arthi. It's great to see you, as always. Old friend. I'm older, yeah. but I value our <laughs> friendship and partnership, so thank you. Yes, 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 indeed. And you are you are calling in from, from L.A. today, aren't you, even though you're based out of New York? I am. And uh, it's strangely, oddly cold here, um, but hopefully it'll warm up for me, so... It's great to see you. Likewise, likewise. So the reason, well, just to give our, our listeners some, some context, and I'll also put a, a link to Aaron's Innovator 25 profile in the show notes, but what landed you on the Innovator 25, not to, not to, not to dismiss all of your prior accomplishments, but one, the thing that really caught our eye was um, you launched Profit, which is sort of an AI-driven SaaS platform that's designed for PR professionals to kind of test and retest pitches, right? Before um, before actually sending them out to journalists. Can you give us a quick summary of, of this of this technology? Yeah, no, absolutely. So at the risk of being overly reductive uh, when it comes to our jobs, you know, I've been doing this for 30 something years. We'll leave it at 30 something. And still today, 30 something years later, we still can't really answer definitively two questions. One is um, how will I know if a reporter is really going to be interested in my pitch? And two is, once they are interested, how do I know that it's actually impacting my enterprise? How's it driving my business? So I'm not here to solve the second one. There are plenty of way smarter, incredible organizations, holding companies and other uh, tech companies who are trying to solve for the measurement conundrum and pull through. Um, I'm here to solve for the first one. I still think that PR people can be more performative and not just rely on instinct and gut but use data to support um, whether or not a reporter is going to be interested, thereby freeing us up to do higher value tasks. So whereas a lot of the market right now, the innovation is focused on how am I doing? I'm focused on how do I do better? And we're using AI, machine learning, and natural language processing to test your pitch against what's written about in the past to surface new reporters, as well as endemic reporters to test their interest, sentiment, and how that pitch will spread. So it's never been done before. Um, I think you're going to see more and more of it. I'm incredibly excited about it. And I do think that we're at the very start of an awakening for comms tech in this PR industry. And I couldn't be more excited. And, and to be clear, so, you know, in terms of AI's involvement, so the, the pitch is still being written manually by a PR professional. It's just being tested with this sort of AI platform. It's not like the AI platform is, 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 is put, putting together a draft um, based on what that journalist has written about in the past and any inputs that the PR professional puts in. I appreciate you saying that and you're absolutely right. I 
at least currently, who knows, I'm, I reserve the right to change my mind. I feel very strongly that art and science um, needs to really, uh, we need to find the intersectionality between art and science. And this, this business has all been art and it needs a little bit more science, but we should never ever remove the art of storytelling um, and creativity and narrative and narrative development. So I don't think that predictive text is there yet. I know that journalists are playing with it, especially for basic things, but I really feel like it is the, um, the domain and we should be owning our trade craft. What this does is just tests it and uh, makes it work harder and better for you. Yes. Okay. Well, that I think that distinction it was is really notable. Um, and and I this is a, a nice chance for me to shout out the fact that we did a panel with you, Aaron, um, last year, in which we had a writer from the New Yorker who did test out sort of artificial intelligence um, predicted text. And why is his name escaping me? Do you remember John Seabrook? John, John Seabrook. Seabrook. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I, yes. Yeah. Such a great fellow. Um, really, really interesting conversation about that that sort of thread. Um, so I will also include a, a link to that in the show notes as well. And I'd highly recommend it's like a, like a 20 minute conversation, but really, really worth listening to. Um, so, okay, so going back to, to profit then, um, I think the origin story of profit is actually quite interesting as well. I think there was some sort of internal competition at MDC Partners. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Where did this come from? You know, was it was it folks at your level that were participating, or was it all tiers of the organization? So, uh, you know, we have a, a new CEO at the company that used to be called MDC. I guess he's not new anymore. It's been about two and a half years. Um, Mark Penn came in from Stagwell, and now we have it's all one big company. We merged in August, but um, back in. Um, the spring of 2019, when Mark joined as uh, MDC, legacy MDC CEO, he said to all the agency heads, hey, come up with 500 words of an idea of a product that sits at the intersection of marketing and technology. Um, and then we'll winnow it down to six finalists. And then whoever wins will provide a million dollar operating budget to develop it um, and commercialize it. So, you know, I'm going up against, I'm actually sitting in their, their home right now, the likes of CPB, 72 and Sunny, Anomaly, like agency siblings that I have great admiration and respect for. And we ended up winning. We pitched Profit. Um, I called it Project Taylor. So if you're a fan of Billions, um, I named it after this incredible algorithmic trader who um, seems to be able to see around corners. I'm like, what if we can do that? And so I named it Taylor and then we named it Profit. Um, and that is the kind of the origin story. And we built it all in-house. So we used um, Stagwell Technology, their developers, their DevOps team to build Profit 1.0. We're about to launch Profit 2.0, uh, which will take on directly Muckrack, Cision, and others. Because right now, Profit is kind of a point solution where it's an additive spend. People don't like to spend additional dollars because it's a strategy tool. And we decided it needs to be both additive and replacement spend, um, but in a less analog, less linear way, and more progressive and uh, performative using AI. So, so, you'll, so with Profit 2.0, you'll be able to identify the journalists um, and you know, have that database as well as testing the pitch all on sort of one, one, one yeah. platform. Yeah, so the, so the first version, you can identify them, but uh, we didn't have contact information. It was only the US. This will have seven countries contact information in a database of um, probably closer to three or 400,000 journalists. Right now it's about 40,000. 
And the difference between the way I view a media database, because everybody talks about how big the database is, it's all funny math, right? It's really about high authority outlets, as well as people, reporters who constantly post high authority journalists. And that's what we're going after uh, versus just downloading blindly lists of you know 300 journalist names who may or may not be interested in your pitch. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, that hopefully is the future. Um, so, okay, so a question now. So this would obviously make media relations and pitching more efficient. Um, for an industry that builds by the hour, if we are making our work more efficient and, and ultimately adding, you know, but, but yet more valuable, because obviously if the, if the pitch is more targeted, then A, you're more likely to be successful, and B, it's like you said, it's more likely to be a high, high authority um, so, uh, journalist who, who writes the story. Do you think this is sort of the tipping point of moving towards maybe looking at a value-based pricing model versus a um, hourly billing model, especially as we have more and more, as a contact com stack becomes more and more efficient at doing our jobs better, um, should we be charging by the hour still? I think it's less about the business model shifting and more about the focus of the value that we provide shifting. So in an ideal world, which I know doesn't exist, but in Aaron's ideal world, um, technologies would create more efficiencies and higher performance in the way that you're describing it. It'll free us up then to focus on things that really matter. And to me, those are things like ESG, DE&I, and internal and other multi-stakeholder communications. Um, and I think that's where I'd like to see us and in our industry spend more time um, than just kind of doing menial and or mundane tasks. It also right. free us up to be more creative and come up with better narratives, narratives that are more resonant and actually really meet kind of unmet needs for these brands in the market. So I don't think it's going to force necessarily a sea change when it comes to the business model, more so the business focus. Okay. It's a great and, question because I hadn't thought of it. Well, right. I mean, well, you know, I, I've been um, working on a project around the, the great resignation and what people, what frustrates people about agency life and the hourly billing model is coming up a lot. And, and the pressure that that puts people under and how, you know, I have folks writing to me telling me that they were at, you know, whatever, 90 plus bill, billability and they had agency marketing responsibilities and they constantly felt like they weren't doing enough. And it, it, it creates this culture. I think someone else said to me um, that it, it creates this culture where you're either amazing or you're terrible and there's just really no in between. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I just wonder as we're at this sort of inflection point of work and the future of work, if this is a chance for agencies to um, think about sort of how, you know, how how they how people how they charge for their work. Um, I do like your point though that if we if we automate some of these grunt tasks that people don't really like to do, then they can maybe do some of that bigger brain work that that probably drew them to the industry in the first place. And they'll, sp they'll spend fewer, better hours doing higher value work and they'll complain less, ideally. I mean, the great resignation is fascinating to me because I think that a lot of people are quitting because they think it's their job. And in certain cases, that might be the case. But I think in a lot of cases, they're quitting because they are unhappy, because we are in a very unhappy, uncertain time. And part of me is like, okay, now you're going to go be unhappy with people that you don't know. You're going to be unhappy with strangers versus people that you work with. Not always the case, but the numbers and the attrition rate has been startling to me and shocking. Um, and I, I think it's very hard to onboard somewhere new remotely. Um, 
But but I do think that if we shift the focus of our industry, and the other thing I want to say about the industry, it's not just about the hours, it's about mental health. And for far too long, the agency environment has completely ignored the mental health and well-being of our staff. I would love to see, not Dr. Wendy Rhodes, sorry for the another billions um, reference, but I can't remember her name now, the doctor from Ted Lasso. I'd like to see every agency have an on-site resource, and it could be a therapist, not just this helpline. Everybody has helplines. That, that's not enough. A real human being that we hire that's part of our human capital team, their sole job is to be um, in charge of our mental health and our well-being. That, to me, would be revolutionary. And I don't know any agency that does that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an excellent point. I think mental health, so as I, I, I opened it up on LinkedIn and I asked people to contact me as to why they're leaving agencies. And I will say my LinkedIn DMs have just been on fire. Um, I saw that. Yeah, and I can't respond to everybody. So you guys, everyone that sent me a note, like, please know that I'm getting it and I'm reading it. But, you know, mental health is another thing that's coming up again and again. I think one one person wrote and said, you know, it became clear that my agency, my mental health came second to my client's, pro, you know, business. And and she said, and that the reason that was a problem was my client saw their business as being 24-7 and it didn't turn off and the pandemic sort of just accelerated that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot, it, and a lot of these folks did go in-house um, since then. Um, a lot of the folks that are writing, writing to me um, already have left agency life. And, and while, you know, no one's pretending like an in-house environment is going to be perfect, it, obviously there's, there's issues there, but that pressure and stress and that constantly feeling like they were not, if they weren't doing, you know, above and beyond, they weren't doing enough, um, that seems to be mitigated in-house, definitely. And there definitely seems to be more resources um, that folks can tap into even outside of their, you know, the communications team. So, yeah. you know, yeah, so that, that's, been, that's been a really interesting um, piece to it. Sort of related, I guess, Aaron, this would be a good chance to kind of ask you about how you um, see the kind of work office culture evolving. And you and I chatted a little bit about this before we started recording. So, um, so, so Aaron and I have some pre-prepared counterpoint <laughs> counterpoints. So let me start off by saying I am a very progressive person. I'm proud of it. And unlike most people, as I get older, I become more and more progressive. Um, I do feel, though, that there needs to be a hybrid model going forward. And I think that there needs to be equal parts time in an office environment. Um, it doesn't have to be the office. It needs to be an office environment where we are and we are kind of shoulder to shoulder with our colleagues there. I do think that, you know, serendipity um, and, and creativity doesn't just happen at all um, or to its greatest potential just through a screen. It just doesn't. On the, on the other hand, though, you know, I've never written more. I've never created more content. I've never had uh, an opportunity like I have over the last two years to be as productive as I have been. But I miss human contact. And we are in a human-centered business. We're creating human connections. And it's odd to me to go 100% virtual. I think that's a mistake. I think being 100% in the office forcibly is also a mistake. So I think there needs to be kind of a happy medium and a happy middle. And some of my fondest memories, and we talked about this before we started recording, I just saw my old friend, David Gallagher, um, when I was in London last week. And some of my fondest memories are when I created those bonds and those relationships with people who worked for me and people I worked for and my colleagues that um, are irreplaceable. And you just, you're never gonna be able to get that remotely, not in the same way. Right. 
Yeah, and, and I think, and here's the thing, so I, I just went through all of the Innovator 25s and I asked people this question. And of course, this is coming up on every single conversation that I'm having with industry leaders. I was talking to Kim Sample at PR Council and she was saying that this is like dominating every single meeting that they're having yeah. right now, right? So, I mean, this is this is something that, um, there's, it, it's clearly there's no totally right and totally wrong answer. Some of this is really gonna come down to each individual, like, you know, individual preference and also, you know, the culture that folks are trying to build. And, you know, and I've heard folks say that, well, you know, you need to be in the office to create culture, but but I, I, I am challenging that a little bit. Um, you know, I think Salesforce here in San Francisco, I mean, who, I mean, they own downtown San Francisco. They've invested more real estate in, in the city than I think anyone else. Um, they've backed up uh, off on that. And they've said, look, we're redefining what culture is. And it's not, it's not a ping pong table. And it's not, you know, the bar cart coming around at three o'clock. You know, culture is your employees feeling valued. Culture could be our employees have dinner with their children at 6 p.m. at night. That's the culture we've created. It doesn't have to be that we all go drinking on Wednesdays at four o'clock or whatever it might be. And, and I do think that shift is, is happening and, and people are having to be more intentional about what culture looks like instead of these little shortcuts that we used to have in the past where it was, you know, we have snacks in the kitchen. Um, so I think that's exciting. Well, let, well, let me ask you this. It is, let, let me ask you this, Arthi, and I think I mentioned this in the questionnaire too. I wanna bring up um, the fact that we are um, inappropriately hyper-focused right now and importantly on DE&I, right? And we talk about uh, making sure we're, we have diverse workforces and we're, and, we're, and we're pulling from a more diverse pool of individuals. And then we talk about inclusion. And I think it stops there. You can't, because after that, you need belonging. I don't see how, as an industry, we can do better and be better when it comes to diversity, inclusion, and belonging, especially belonging, if we're all 100% remote. Because understanding, having an affinity for it, having, an, having um, empathy um, for people who do not look like you and have different cultural experiences and life experiences is, I think, a lot better and more meaningful and impactful when you're together at some level. And that's the other concern I have with virtual work. I don't know if it'll help us meet those D, E, and I goals, D, E, and I, and B, because the belonging is the one I'm focused on mostly right now. Right. So, so there, there, of course, there is data on this. And, um, and I, again, a shout out to, this is Future Forum, which is Slack's um, research arm. Again, another Salesforce shout out. Um, they they actually did a pretty extensive research on this, and I will actually I actually interviewed the woman from Slack, Helen Cup, really brilliant woman. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Basically, um, people of color feel more comfortable working remote than they do working in the office because they're too often there's not enough of them in the office, and in our industry, we know that's a problem. And there are all of these microaggressions and little ways where they feel excluded in an office setting that they don't actually remote and. And, you know, part of that is, you know, th those microaggressions that folks that have not been on the receiving end of that maybe underestimate how much of a toll they can take on productivity when you are just sort of in your zone and you're able to just get your, your work done, you work with your colleagues on specific projects, and yes, you banter and you have that, that camaraderie, but, you know, you're not having to see the, you know, 10 white people in the office go have happy hour together and you're sitting there at your desk and, you know, it's not, it's not malicious. It's not necessarily that they intended to leave you out. Right. But it's just that you maybe didn't, you know, have that back, you know, you didn't go to the same college with them. You weren't in the same fraternity or whatever. So you don't have that, that social context. So, so there is a DEI case to be made for remote work. And then also if we look at 
who who needs to live in a cheaper location, who cannot live in downtown New York or in downtown San Francisco, um, who needs to move an hour and a half outside, um, both in terms of socioeconomic, but also life stage and things like that. So there's, so I hear you and I do think that building that culture is important, but I, I, think, we're, I think we're both probably ultimately gonna be arguing the same thing, which is it needs to be a balance. Maybe yeah. my balance over index is a little bit on remote, maybe yours over index is a little bit on the office, but I think we're still kind of saying yeah. the same thing. Yeah, and, and and that's a really good point. I'm glad you raised that because I totally agree with that. Uh, what you're citing with Slack, I my only concern is that that's like putting pause on a problem that still needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's fine, but we still need to do the work, and it has to be done in person. I think at some point, but it's a good yeah. point. Right. So I, I and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you specifically about uh, um, when I in the Q and A I asked them um, what are your fears and concerns for the industry. And something that kind of stood out to me in your response was um, companies are more disposable and staff have expectations around work life that may not be sustainable. Can you explain what you meant by that? Wow, how long do we have? <laughs> um, I, you know, I, 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 I think I know what you're trying to say, but I, I want to, I, I think that, so I, I, that's, I think that especially the latter part of that sentence about staff's expectations around work and life may not be sustainable. I'm sure there are people that are going to read that and they are going to want to know what you mean. So what I mean is um, there needs to be, you know, um, like the relationship between an employer and an employee uh, needs to be just that, it needs to be a relationship. There needs to be kind of mutuality. And um, I am concerned that because of the pandemic, um, you know, we probably, and not just our industry, but industry in general, over-indexed on um, the ability to be kind of remote, right? And what I what I want to be able to convey in that response, although it's one sentence, is that, again, going back to what we said before, I feel it's very important that it's hybrid because we're human beings. And the best learning and the best growth comes from human interaction. Um, and, you know, you see this at colleges and universities too. My son, who's now a junior at university, um, he really did not love his online classes. Um, he felt like he learned, but it was more like transactional and checking the boxes. And I just wanna make sure that we don't move into a transactional economy when our industry is so about relationships. I mean, relations is in the name of what we do. Mm -hmm. And that, that's some of my concern, uh, but it all comes down to leadership and flexibility. Look, at my agency, we always were very flexible. Um, regardless of what the ask was, as long as it's reasonable, you know, we treated people like adults. So the overall assumption is you're going to use good judgment. And you're going to be like an adult. And I'm not going to question it until you give us reason to have to question it, which happens on occasion, but most people do the right thing, you know? Right. I think one of the, the themes that's coming across in the other Innovator 25s as well is this idea that people function best in, in uh, cultures of trust. Right, yes. like where, yes. right, and and that I think that especially for our industry where we attract really bright, motivated people, um, I think micromanaging tends to be the, the the death knell for any culture and any person's individual productivity. So I think yeah, creating these cultures of trust. I also thought another humane um, perspective was not making people explain why they're working from home or remotely. Um, it's often personal reasons that I, I never understood why companies had to, people had to announce on like some sort of open channel that they had a migraine or that their dog was throwing up or whatever it was, right? That if they want to tell people they can, but the, the expectation shouldn't be that 
they open up their lives and say, hey, here's what's happening right now. It's so funny you mentioned that for a while, um, I was I, myself and a few others where I was like, that's just too much information. We don't need to know that you're getting, you know, uh, some an, an abscess drained from your mouth or whatever. Just if you need a wellness day or if you need a PTO day or right. day off, just take it. It's all good. And yeah. we actually have unlimited PTO, which is not right. which, again, is a sign of trust. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I do think you, you, you nailed it. Um, it is all about culture of trust and we never ask people why um we just want to make sure that they're okay and that's right. really true that's absolutely true yeah so um i think we kind of summarized you know i asked you what you're thinking about most of these days you said mental health and well-being and um equity equality and belonging at work is there anything on those two things that we haven't talked about or that i haven't asked you about that you want to mention I mean, uh, obviously, because we started uh, at, at the top uh, with just innovation. I am, I, I am um, both heartened by the fact that we're moving more towards um, technology enabling workflows, but at the same time, there's still a large contingent of folks in our industry who think that data is math and they're not the same. And a lot of people don't like math. Um, and I feel like I need to be like the Andrew Yang of the PR industry and wear a little sign that says data. And um, I just want people to embrace data and realize that it's their friend. Technology can make us all better at what we do um, and free us up to do things that are greater for kind of humanity um, in general. But I think mental health is still not talked about enough. There's still stigma associated with it. Um, and I think we need to think about how we staff and resource um, our agencies and our firms to better help people manage themselves. And also, I think just you know, there's no such thing anymore, especially because of Zoom and this uh, the, the pandemic. There's no such thing anymore as personal and business is all combined. So I think we have a great responsibility to help people. I think we do. Not everybody agrees with that. And this is where people call me Bernie Sanders and think I'm a socialist, but I do think that we have a greater responsibility to our staff. Well, you know, so I, so actually, I don't think that socialist at all. And I mean, not that socialism, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to stigmatize socialism either because I think that's a valid yeah. worldview, but um, you know, I mean, out in the, you know, I was talking to Karen Kahn at HP and, you know, and, and she's, she talks very much about how we are finding some level of self-actualization through our work, right? I mean, there is a responsibility that um, employers, especially ones that position themselves as, as purpose-driven, right? That, you know, that you are fulfilling um, your employees' needs, not just their, you know, their financial needs, right? They're, they're, they're getting other more spiritual, you know, humanitarian needs met through their employment. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you then a question about the nature of our own work. Again, as I mentioned, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people in our industry about what burns them out or what, what has turned them away from agencies. And to your point about going back to profit, media relations. Um, obviously we all know media relations is harder than it's ever been. And it seems like every company has this expectation. Yes, every company does have a story to tell, but not every company's story is going to be told through the traditional journals and channels. And I, you know, there, I've gotten emails from people saying that, that, that that's what was so stressful about the agency life was they had the client expectations here. They had agency management making promises to win clients. And then the staff being left to 
feel like they were, you know, failures if they couldn't meet these unrealistic expectations. I remember one person said that her, her clients were so small and they would look at their massive competitors and say, well, how come so-and-so is always in the paper and always in, and they were just like, I can't, I, she's like, I'm a, she was saying, she's like, I'm a former journalist. And I was like, I, I, this is, there are other channels we can use to get, tell your story, but media relations may not be the one right now. And I, I wonder how many, I mean, you know, I know that you, I know KWT is diversified. I know most agencies have diversified along those lines, but it seems like most, a lot of clients still, what they want is media. Um, yeah, I think it's, um, but it, it is a little bit different and you're right. Most brands and clients think they're more interesting than they really are. And then they're like, they rely on us to make them interesting, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the, I'm, I'm sorry to go back to profit. I will just for one second. One of the benefits of a tool like Profit is we're able to go back to an executive or a client and say, actually, this pitch isn't going to work. The data proves it, not just my experience, my instinct, but what if we tweak it a little bit and what if we do it this way or a different way and then we'll rerun it and see how we can get those themes back into the marketplace. And the same thing with crisis testing, crisis statements. So that is one way to address it. Um, and, and the other thing is I just think that... Um, we need to be very careful in the types of clients uh, in the agency world, right? The types of clients that we decide to represent. Um, and I still think that too many agencies lead with their pocketbook and not their heart or their moral compass when it comes to who they're going to represent. And that has always been frustrating to me. And this is where I sound like a self-righteous asshole, but I will never surrender kind of my morals or moral standing just for money. Uh, and that's also part of the equation. I'd like to see agencies take more of a stand. And I'm not saying they just, you know, don't work for fossil fuels. There's a whole list. Right. Um, but, you know, if a company is trying to, let's say an ex extraction company, and they're trying to do better, and they have a plan or a path towards that progression, sure. But if they're just going to continue to contribute to our environmental crises, then why are we representing them? The problem is someone will. It's just not going to be me. Right. Do you think, you know, as much as agencies talk about people first, we all saw how quick and in some cases eagerly some agencies were to lay people off in May 2020. I mean, I remember getting the calls. I remember there were some agency owners that I think were downright giddy about it. Others that were calling me agonizing about how do I keep people and how, you know, how much of a pay cut am I and my senior leadership going to take so that we can weather the storm. I remember talking to some CEOs that were just like, no, I think this is a short term blip. I'm not going to throw my people under the bus um, because I think that I think we're going to come back stronger. But but what th that's not what made the headlines. What made the headlines were the agencies that cut and that cut quickly and some of them cut quite deeply. So I, I, do, do you think that's eroded the trust people have in the agency model that you have a bad quarter and your job could be gone? I know this, I kind of went on a bit of a tangent, but I no. get your take here. Well, the COVID example from that spring of 2020, which I would never want to relive ever again in my life, um, is a very good one. I think that it's how you communicate it. You know, like all agencies, we had to furlough some and cut some. Um, and then we all, executives all took pay cuts. Um, but what we, we had, it's how you explain it. We did it in order to protect the majority. Mm -hmm. That's a thing. So like one saves the other because it's it's not about it's not about hitting your margin. It's about being able to, um, you know, uh, basically um, continue to give people their paychecks because there's so much uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, if there's certainty, it's different. But because that was such an unusual time and we didn't know 
some clients that we thought would be gone in a heartbeat stayed and even increased their budget and other clients we thought would stay were gone in like days yeah. right and clients also it's a, it's a daisy chain cuz clients sometimes view agency relationship as the, as as disposable and um then we're left with the cost and the expense. And then we have to figure out how do we redeploy people, assuming there's more revenue to redeploy them again. So it's just so complicated. Right. And the only way to cut through that is to be extremely transparent and not opaque and to be overly communicative with your staff about why you're doing it and, um, and, and prepare them for the fact that there might be more to come because there's so much uncertainty right now. Yeah, I think, and that was, I think, really tough, I think, for for folks to both communicate from, you know, leadership and also for folks to hear, right? Because I had one leader tell me that, you know, she kept, she was part of a big holding group and she kept, her staff kept asking her, well, is there going to be another round? And she ha kept having to tell them, I don't know. Because she is, you know, if you're a founder, maybe you have a little bit more certainty, you can kind of, you know, business plan maybe farther out, but she was part of a holding group. And she said that was one of the hardest things was having to tell the staff again and again that I cannot guarantee that this is the end. Um, yeah. So this is where I give um, then MDC now Stagwell a lot of credit and Mark was uh, CEO at the time. I mean, poor guy, he, he like he was CEO for like six months and then this pandemic hit and we signed a lease at One World Trade Center. Um, he said, you know, I trust you. You're the agency head and you do what you need to do hmm. um, to keep everybody, keep it all together. And uh, there was a level of kind of trust and autonomy and independence and interdependence that was there that I don't think exists in a lot of holding companies. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I really appreciate it. That's, I mean, I, I think that, so, you know, not, not, not all publicly traded companies are, are equal, right? I mean, there's, there's right. levels of autonomy that leaders have. Um, I want to close on just giving a shout out to your mom, because I, <laughs> I, I, I saw that your response to, to who, you know, what, what inspires you? And you said, my mom, she's a Holocaust survivor and raised me as a single parent from age 11, and she is 90 years young. When is yeah. her birthday? Can we, can we at least wish her a happy coming or belated? She's, you're, you're gonna you're gonna make me cry, but nobody can see this. She's uh, she turns 91 in March, March 25th, born in 1931, and she's an incredible person. You know, I just don't. I hopefully none of us in our lifetime will ever experience the trauma that she's experienced. Um, but I think that um, it made her a much stronger person and an incredible mentor um, and um, inspiration for me and my three siblings. So uh, I appreciate you asking the question. And, uh, and, and I, I also recognize, because I'm not that dumb, that you know I don't know how much longer we're going to have her. Um, but I don't know anybody stronger, honestly. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, I, I saw that in it. And it, I, I, I wanted to make sure we at least gave her a shout out in this conversation. Well, Aaron, it was spirited as always, and I am looking forward to when you and I can go have dinner at the Claremont again. Isn't that, isn't that where we've met there before, right? Like, cause that's your yes. spot, right? So. Um, great, great, great swimming pool. Great swimming yes, pool. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for this conversation and we will talk again soon and we will be back soon with another episode of the Provoke Media Podcast. Thanks, Arvi. been listening to the Provoke podcast brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.